Psalm 78, beginning in verse 40, the psalmist writes, How often they provoked him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. Yes, again and again they tempted God and limited the Holy One of Israel. An oxymoron is an expression that on the surface appears to be contradictory. But when used in the common vernacular, it makes perfect sense. For example, the phrase, civil war. Civil war. In the history of humanity, there has never been a war that was civil. I love oxymorons. I'm sort of a connoisseur. I I like to collect them. Here are a few of my favorites. Routine emergency. If it's my emergency, it's not routine. Minor miracle. (laughs) No miracle is minor. Fairly stable. Dry ice. Working vacation. No, it doesn't work. 30-minute lunch hour. (laughs) Safety hazard. Pretty ugly. You just can't be pretty ugly. Diet ice cream. Mall food. Top floor. Smart bomb. Microsoft works. An oxymoron indeed. And my all-time favorite, political promise. (laughs) Yogi Berra was a Hall of Fame catcher for the New York Yankees, and he was famous for his oxymorons. Here are a few yogiisms. No wonder nobody comes here. It's too crowded. Or a nickel ain't worth a dime anymore. Or here's his most famous oxymoron. It ain't over till it's over. Well, here in Psalm 78, we have an oxymoron. We have a statement that at first glance appears contradictory. If you didn't know any better, you'd think it was written by Yogi Berra rather than by Asaph. In Psalm 78, verse 41, we're told that the Hebrews in Moses' day limited the Holy One of Israel. How do you limit omnipotence? How do you limit the infinite? Limit the unlimitable. How do you put limits on a God who has no limits? God hung the heavens. He spun the stars into their orbits. He corralled the seas and adorned the earth with life. He paints the sunset every evening. He made the first man, Adam, from the dust to the ground and then breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. This is the God who spoke and mountains trembled. The God before whom the nations fear. The God at which one day every knee will bow. This is the same God who humbled the powerful princes of Egypt. He humbled them with His mighty miracles. This is the God who parted the sea and then swallowed up the pursuers. Yes, it's hard to imagine. You have to work hard to get your mind around it. To conceptualize it. But it's true. The Hebrews limited the Almighty. They limited the Creator, the Sustainer, the Holy One of Israel. 
Now, don't misunderstand. They didn't restrain God. Who can restrain raw, majestic power? No one handcuffs God. No one prevails against Him. You can never halt His power, but you can hinder His plans. You see, the Israelites created conditions in which God refused to work. The Hebrew word translated here in the verse, limited, means to scratch off or to mark off. There were miracles that God wanted to do that He didn't. There were blessings that He wanted to bestow on His people that He scratched off. And why? They limited God because of their chronic complaining. Every time they opened their mouth, out came grumbling and murmuring and criticism. The Hebrews, they were always griping about something. It's been said, the reason we enjoy goldfish is that we like to see something with its mouth open that's not complaining. And here's the sobering reality for you and me. Think of it. People who wanted to see God do mighty deeds can create conditions that limit His work. If it happened to God's people of old, it can happen to Christians today. We too can limit the Holy One. These Hebrews, they were malcontents and grumblers. Just listen to our text. How often they provoked Him. They refused to trust the Lord. They doubted His wisdom and love. Rather than comply, they provoked Him. They grieved Him daily, we're told. Nothing pleased them. They found something wrong with every wonderful thing God did for them. They were never satisfied. We're told again and again they tempted God. Like kids who are constantly testing their parents' authority, Israel kept pushing the limits of God's grace and God's patience. And finally, God had enough. He scratched off their blessings. The older generation died in the wilderness, never tasting the milk and honey of the promised land. A two-week two pilgrimage became a 40-year death march. It's been said some people rise and shine when they wake up in the morning, whereas the Hebrews greeted each new day with a rise and wine. Did you hear about the married lady with the sour husband? Can you imagine this? A married lady with a sour husband? When asked, do you ever wake up grumpy? She responded, no, I usually let him sleep in. <laughs> well, every morning the Hebrews woke up grumpy. And according to the psalmist, they limited the Holy One. And yet their complaining was really only a symptom of a deeper problem. In Exodus chapter 16, verse 8, you should write that down and go back and read it later. Exodus 16, verse 8, Moses analyzes their attitude. He says, your complaints are not against us, but against the Lord. Their perpetual grumbling revealed their lack of faith. The Hebrews complained about their circumstances because they didn't trust in their God. See, our God is sovereign over all things. That means that nothing happens in the world or in our lives without at least getting His permission. Even in a grim situation, we can remain confident of an all-wise and an all-loving God that He is in control. 
Ever so often I check my Bible just to make sure Romans chapter 8 verse 28 is still there. You know the promise. All things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Paul Harvey tells the story about a Wednesday night in 1950 at Westside Baptist Church in Beatrice, Nebraska. Every Wednesday night, the church had a choir practice. It started at 7.30 sharp, but not on March 1st, 1950. At 7.30 that Wednesday, no one was in the building. All 18 members were late for different reasons. Apparently, the pianist overslept while taking a nap. A high school student had trouble with her homework and was delayed. One couple had a car that wouldn't start. Even the pastor and his wife were late getting there, which was rare. It was the only Wednesday in the church's history that choir practice didn't start at 7.30 sharp. In fact, no one had even arrived, and it was a good thing. For at exactly 7.30 that night, a gas leak in the basement ignited the furnace, which was directly under the choir loft. The building exploded and was engulfed in flames. God had miraculously protected His people by arranging circumstances to make certain that each choir member was late arriving to church that night. Realize, there is no such thing as luck or fate or chance. God is in control of every aspect of our lives. Every roll of the dice, every bounce of the football, hey, every turn of the hurricane is overseen by God. Proverbs 16, verse 33 tells us, The lot is cast, but its every decision is from the Lord. In this life, we don't always learn why, but we can be comforted by who. Of course, why God saves some and not others remains a mystery. But we do know that God is love. He tolerates evil in the world, but He never orchestrates it. In fact, He even takes the evil and He works it for our good. And there's no greater example of this than the cross of Jesus Christ. God's Son endured the worst act of terrorism in history. And God turned it into our salvation. We don't always understand what God is doing in our lives. But we know that in the end, when we look back, we'll see that He had a good reason for all that He allowed. See, our lives are like a cross stitch. We see only the backside, the underside. What looks like a tangled web of chaos and confusion. But from the top side, from heaven's side, the lines make sense. And they weave a beautiful picture. i got a poem for you. My life is but a weaving between the Lord and me. I cannot choose the colors. He works it steadily. Often he weaves sorrow and I in foolish pride. Forget he sees the upper and I the underside. The dark threads are as needful in the weaver's skillful hand as the threads of gold and silver in the pattern he has planned. Not until the loom is silent and the shuttle ceases to fly shall God unroll the canvas and explain the reason why. In the meantime, we need to trust Him. See, God is in control. And when we grumble and complain, we are doubting His sovereignty. It's been said, when we swear, we take the name of God in vain. But when we grumble, we take the purposes of God in vain. When we complain about life's daily irritations, the flat tire, or the late assignment, or the low pay, or the spouse that won't change, 
or the uncooperative neighbor or the ornery co-worker. In a real sense, we're really just complaining about God. Hey, pray to God about your situation. Take appropriate action to change it if you can. Certainly learn the lessons God wants to teach you. But whatever you do, don't complain. In 1 Corinthians 10, verses 9 and 10, Paul reminds us that all of Hebrew history is for our example. He writes, Nor let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted, nor murmur, as some of them also murmured. For we too can limit God. We can forfeit His blessings and waste His grace. If we murmur and complain, God will scratch off blessings that He has intended for us. We can miss out on God's best. They say every time a lamb bleats, it loses a mouthful of food. And every time a Christian grumbles, we lose a blessing from God. See, here's a lesson for all Christians. Whining and worship should never come from the same mouth. Grumbling will limit what God wants to do in and through us. You see, these Jews, they murmured off and on for 40 years. But they consistently complained about the same three things. About the manna, about Moses, and about their marching orders. Or you could frame it this way. They complained about the menu, the messenger, and the mission. The Hebrews complained about the provision that God had given them, the authority that God had placed over them, and the task that God had assigned to them. And when we study their grumblings and grievances, it's like looking in a mirror. For we too are tempted to mimic the same three complaints. Yet when we do, we limit what God will perform for and through His people today. Well, first, I want you to understand that Israel complained about the menu. See, God promised them three square meals each day for three million people. The meals were even supernaturally catered. Every morning when the people awoke, they looked outside their tents, and there on the ground they found the manna, the original wonder bread. And all they had to do was just walk outside and collect enough for that day. And every day was the same. Six days out of seven, for 40 years, God was faithful to provide the manna. God's provision preserved their lives and their children's lives in the desert. And yet, rather than be thankful for God's supply, they grumbled about the grub. They're quoted in Numbers chapter 11, verses 5 and 6. We remember the fish that we ate freely in Egypt. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our whole being is dried up. There is nothing at all except this manna before our eyes. The menu had grown old. I guess even miracles can get monotonous. Oh no, not the same old, same old again today. Manna bagels and manna burgers and manna tacos and manna chili and manna soup and manna cotti. Manna, 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 oh man, not more manna. Now I'm sure if someone had run a test on that manna to determine its chemical composition, 
It would have contained all the nutritional elements needed to meet the USDA daily requirements. But the Jews weren't content. They wanted more. Variety is the spice of life. Rather than what was good for them, they wanted something that would tantalize their taste buds. God, how about some meat and potatoes? And God has such a sense of humor. In Numbers chapter 11, he tells the grumblers, if it's meat you want, then it's meat you're going to get. But not just one day's portion, or two days, or five days, or ten days, or twenty days, but a whole month's worth of meat. As God himself puts it in Numbers 11, until it comes out your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you. You'll get meat until it comes out your snout. Understand, the Hebrews in the wilderness limited God because they weren't content with His provision. And we too have problems at times being content with what God provides. Why is it we always want more? Or we pray for that house, or that job, or that child, or that car, and God blesses us. But then just months later, we're no longer satisfied. We're no longer happy with God's provision. We're right back asking God for another can't live without request. I've even met church leaders who grumble about God's provision. Oh, we don't have enough money. Or the church doesn't support us. Or we need more volunteers. Yet if you want God to bless your ministry in the future, you need to learn to rejoice in what He's currently supplied. See, Satan loves to breed discontent. All is fine until he plants the suggestion in our minds, if you just drove that car, or if you just had a different job, or if you had just married her, or if you could relocate to a different town, or if you had a new church. This is how the advertising industry works. It breeds discontent. I mean, you can watch TV for an hour and you start thinking, I thought I was happy. Now I need this or I need that. If you don't buy that new toothpaste, you'll never be satisfied in life. Reminds me of the two tombstones side by side. The first one read, she died for want of things. The second marker read, he died trying to give them to her. (laughs) I read recently where a hundred years ago, the average man had 70 wants. Today, his grandson has 500 wants. We live in the gimme generation. Nobody has enough. Everybody wants more and more and more. I recall a cartoon I once saw. Two cows were grazing in two identical pastures. The pastures were separated by a white picket fence. But the cows, they had their heads stuck through the fence. And they were eating each other's pastures grass. The caption read just one word, discontent. The grass is always greener on the other side. But remember, where the grass is greener, the water bill is higher. Two teardrops were floating down the river one day. One teardrop asked the other where he was from. He answered, he said, I'm a tear shed by a man who lost his sweetheart. The second tear replied, and I'm a tear from a man who found her. Trust me, 
What you think you need is not always what you need. When Satan comes in with his suggestions, trust God. Believe Jesus in Matthew 6 verse 8. There he tells us, your father knows the things you have need of before you even ask. Father knows best. If you want to be happy, learn to be content with God's provision. But in addition to the menu God prescribed, secondly, I want you to notice that Israel complained about the messenger. God sent Moses to deliver his people out of Egypt and lead them to the promised land. And perhaps there was no more godly man in all of the Bible than Moses. Yet you would have never known it by how the people treated him. Everything Moses did was met with opposition from these Hebrews. They criticized his actions. They challenged his authority. They questioned his motives. They were rebels and mavericks. They were a tough bunch to pastor. You remember when Korah led a rebellion, Moses called on God to affirm his authority. Miraculously, the ground opened up and swallowed Korah and all of his colleagues. And you'd think no one would ever doubt Moses again. And yet the people who didn't get swallowed up had a hard time swallowing God's affirmation of Moses. They accused Moses of playing too rough. They criticized him again. And once more, 14,000 people died in a plague. See, we also limit God when we complain about the person or persons that God has placed over us. Whether that person is your boss or your husband or your parents or your pastor or a ministry leader. We limit God when we spend time finding fault in the authority He's put in our lives. You know, it always amazes me at the turnover that occurs every year among big league Baseball managers. Ironically, the managers get fired from one team and then they get rehired by another team. It's just like he's got 25 guys just kind of rotating around. For when a team does poorly, no one suggests they fire all the players. You don't want to fire 25 players. No one ever says, why don't you fire the fans? It's easier just to fire the manager. See, our tendency is to look for a scapegoat, someone to blame. We do all we can to shift the responsibility off of me. I've heard it said to err is human. To blame it on the other guy is even more human. Or the man who can smile when things go wrong has probably just thought of somebody else he can blame it on. Once a car insurance company compiled a list of excuses that they took off of actual uh, claim forms. Here are a few of the rationalizations that appeared on the forms. One man wrote, an invisible car came out of nowhere, struck my car, and vanished. That's amazing. Suddenly a tree was there where no tree had been before. I pulled away from the side of the road, glanced at my mother-in-law, and headed over the embankment. Now that one you might could believe. The pedestrian had no idea which direction to go, so I ran over him. (laughs) The guy was all over the road. I had to swerve a number of times before I hit him. A pedestrian hit me and went under my car. (laughs) The telephone pole was approaching fast. 
I attempted to swerve when it struck my front end. You remember God told Balaam to only go with Balak's messengers under a specific set of circumstances. But Balaam ignored God's instructions and he went anyway. And when an angel appeared in the path, Balaam didn't see the angelic roadblock, but his donkey did. And the burrow swerved off the path to avoid the angel. Three times the donkey swerved to avoid a collision. And each time, rather than blame himself in his own path, Balaam got mad at his burrow. He took a stick and went burrow bashing. And I would imagine we also have a few burrow bashers here this morning. God has been trying to get your attention. But you've been passing the buck. You've been reaping the consequences of your own actions, but you've been taking it out on your pastor or members of your congregation or even your wife and kids. You've been beating your burrow. You know, there's an old AA motto that goes, if I am not the problem, there can be no solution. Until you take personal responsibility for where you're at, there's little hope of moving forward. Be careful about blaming your problems on someone else. Until you own your problems, God won't solve them. You will limit God. And it's sad, but nowhere is this tendency to shift the blame more prevalent than in the church. People will complain, oh, I'm not growing or my family's not being ministered to. It must be the pastor or the children's ministry or the worship team. People treat the church like Israel treated Moses. Many folks tend to blame their spiritual inertia and their unfruitfulness on the church or on its pastor rather than look at whether they're doing what it takes to grow. People can be so picky and so critical. They focus on petty problems and ignore the good that's being done. Some church people are never satisfied. They sing the little refrain, I worry, I putter, I push, and I shove, hunting little molehills to make mountains of. Do you make mountains out of molehills? There are even church workers who, if they don't get their own way, they'll take their bat and ball and go home. Be careful that you don't blame your problems on the pastor or on the fellow elders or on other members in the church. Listen carefully. If you hear your pastor preach an unbiblical doctrine, or you see him involved in some immoral activity, or learn of him handling the people or the funds in an unethical manner, then you don't just have a problem that you should take action. No, it's your duty to take action. You should blow the whistle on him. But if your pastor is biblical in his teaching and moral in his living, and ethical in his handling of people and money, then you need to love him, and you need to support him. You could do a lot worse. You need to appreciate your pastor. See, if you've got a pastor who's biblical, and moral, and ethical, don't make his job tougher than it already is. If you're upset because you think the worship time needs to be longer, or he should make more hospital visits, or he won't let your baby come into the sanctuary, then you need to give it up. Submit to the church's leadership and trust God to guide your pastor. 
If you're complaining about the fact you don't like his jokes, well, his wife has been complaining about that for a long time too. (laughs) Or the shirts that he wears, or the color of the carpet, then you need to repent of pettiness. In many churches, it's pettiness that's limiting God. The late Mike Iaconelli, he provided a vital insight into today's churches. He once wrote, The problem with the church today is not corruption. It's not institutionalism. The problem is far more serious than something like the pastor running off with the secretary. The real problem is pettiness. Blatant pettiness. Remember when the Hebrews fought against the Amalekites. Whenever Moses raised the rod, the victory belonged to Israel. But when his arms got tired and the rod would nod, the Amalekites got the upper hand. And that's when Aaron and Hur, two men, saw what was happening. And they stood alongside Moses to help prop up his arms. And every pastor needs an Aaron and a Hur to help prop up his arms. Actually, a pastor doesn't need a her. He needs a him. Not a her. His her is his wife. You don't need any other hers. What we do need are a few hymns. Men who love us and who support us and help us shoulder the responsibility of ministry. When your pastor is straining and struggling and sweating, doing all he can to keep his arms raised, don't just sit back and wonder, oh, how can a simple rod get so heavy? Trust me, it can. Realize when the church complains, the enemy gets the upper hand. I would never advocate you putting blind trust in any leader, a politician or a boss or a pastor. Put your trust in God. But if God has set someone over you and that person is doing his best, then support him and pray for him. And if you disagree with a decision, give him the benefit of the doubt. Don't trust the the leader himself, but trust God to work in and through that leader. What we often forget is God is teaching him as he teaches us. Hebrews 13 verse 17 is a challenge to us all. It says, obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. God places each of us under a particular authority for a reason. If you don't like what that authority is doing, then pray for Him. If you have to quit, then quit. But whatever you do, don't complain. You limit what God can do in and for your church when you become bitter. And often it's when we stop complaining that God then takes the initiative to change our circumstances. Well, the Hebrews grumbled and complained about the menu, about the messenger, and then finally about the mission. When the nation arrived at the border at Kadesh Barnea, God told them to enter the land and to conquer its inhabitants. But when the spies brought back their report of resident giants, the Hebrews murmured, we would have been better off dying in Egypt or in the desert than to become food for King Kong. Why did the Lord bring us here just to have us die? Let's select a leader and return to Egypt. Slavery is better than slaughter. 
You see, it's a lot easier to bellyache than it is to believe. To murmur than to mobilize. To feud with the family than it is to fight with the enemy. The children of Israel concluded their untrained army could never conquer these giants. And so they grumbled. They focused on the obstacles rather than the Lord. They saw all the reasons why it wouldn't work. But they didn't factor God into the equation. And their skeptical attitude limited God. See, the Hebrews counted the task impossible. And the experts, the rational thinkers, died in the wilderness. I ran across a few examples where the so-called experts turned out to be wrong. As a matter of fact, if their comments had been heeded, it would have limited some of the greatest achievements over the past 100 years. In 1899, Charles Duell, the U.S. Patent Office director, said, Everything that can be invented has been invented. 1899. In 1927, H.M. Warner of Warner Brothers Pictures said, Who the heck wants to hear actors talk? In 1905, President Grover Cleveland said, Sensible and responsible women don't want to vote. He was wrong. In 1923, Robert Millikan, a Nobel winner in physics, said, There is no likelihood man can ever tap the power of the atom. In 1895, Lord Kelvin made this observation, Heavier than air flying machines are impossible. In 1927, baseball great Tris Speaker scoffed, Babe Ruth made a big mistake when he gave up pitching. And actor Gary Cooper once made the statement, Gone with the Wind is going to be the biggest flop in Hollywood history. I'm just glad it'll be Clark Gable falling on his face and not me. See, when God told Israel to move out and to conquer the wicked Canaanites, they grumbled and they complained and they gave all the reasons why it couldn't happen because bickering is always easier than believing. Their murmuring was just a mask for their unbelief. They feared the obstacles more than they feared the Lord. Their complaining was a smokescreen for a greater evil, and that's a lack of faith. It's true. Our problem is not the greatness of our troubles. It's the littleness of our faith. Only Joshua and Caleb, men of faith, focused on the opportunities rather than the obstacles. They alone among the Hebrews saw the grapes, not the giants. And we too need to concentrate on God's promises and possibilities rather than our problems. Let's believe God will make us victors, not victims. It's when we complain about the challenge that we're shrinking from the opportunity that God provides for us. I've heard it said some people grumble because God put thorns among the roses, while other people praise God because He put roses among the thorns. It really is a matter of perspective. What we see through a camera depends on the lens. And how we see a situation depends on whether we're looking through the lens of faith or through the lens of fear. The man of faith sees things not only as they are, but as they can be. Your pastor is talking about winning a whole community to Christ. Yet your little faith can't see how the Lord can change your hard-hearted cousin. Don't balk at the challenges God puts in front of you. Have faith and watch God perform His will.
God wants to stretch us. He wants to grow us. That's why it's not uncommon for Him to assign missions that go beyond our capabilities and beyond our resources. He likes to challenge us with tasks that force us to rise up in faith. Israel looked at that giant Goliath and said, Man, he's too big to hit. Whereas David, the little boy with the big heart, said of the same giant, He's too big to miss. Go forward in faith. Don't grumble in unbelief. In Matthew 13, we find a sobering scripture. When Jesus passed through his hometown of Nazareth, we're told, He did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Hey, with God, nothing is impossible. And yet our unbelief will definitely limit what he does. Once a man went to heaven, an angel gave him a tour. As they walked the streets, they came to a warehouse stuffed with unopened presents. Everywhere there were unwrapped gifts that still had name tags attached. The man asked the angel why all these presents were still unopened. And that's when the angel said, they're the gifts that God wanted to give his people, but he couldn't. Are you limiting the Holy One of Israel? Have you been grumbling and complaining? Are you leaving gifts in heaven intended for you unopened? Have you been dissatisfied with the menu? Have you been complaining and taking sides against the messenger? Have you been reluctant to embrace the mission? I'm praying that you'll decide it's time to stop your murmuring and your doubting and start living by faith. Here's a poem by a woman named Lois Cheney. At first you think she's writing about Nazareth of old. She says, There was a place where the unbelief was so great that Jesus, Jesus the Son of God, could not heal and help. And so He left them. And then she asks, Has anyone seen Jesus lately? For it's not just Nazareth that's limited Him. Over the last few months, has anyone seen Jesus in this place? Has anyone seen Jesus in your life? Are you full of faith? Or have you been grumbling and complaining about the menu and the messenger and the mission? What was said of the town of Nazareth, may it never be said of us. Let's not limit our unlimitable God. Father, we thank you. For your word to us this morning. Lord, give us strong faith. Lord, help us not hide our unbelief behind a smokescreen of grumbling and complaining. Help us rise up in faith, Lord. Help us believe in your promises. Lord, help us know and be certain of the fact you have greater things in store for us. Lord, there are gifts and there are things that you want to do in our lives. Lord, that are ours for the taking if we'll rise up in faith and truly believe. Lord, give us strong faith this morning. Work in our hearts. We love you, Lord, and forgive us for those moments where we've grumbled and complained and doubted your, your care and your sovereignty. Work in our lives, Lord. We love you. We thank you. We pray you'll bless this church, Lord. We thank you for it. We pray you'll bless it in the coming days and use it to reach this community. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.